gray really connotes this practice that benefits a few in the short term, but negatively impacts the majority of us in our planet for the long term. And then green being this practice that connotes a building practice that benefits all of us while supporting the health of our planet now and for the long term. I'm Dana Borland. I'm the author of Gray to Green Communities, a call to action on the housing and climate crisis. The housing and climate crises are urgent and complex. For people doing the work, addressing these parallel crises requires a fundamental shift in thinking. Hi, I'm Kim Vermeer, the host of Green in Action, the podcast where we celebrate green leadership in affordable housing. For this episode of the show, I had a conversation with thought leader, green practitioner, and fellow Island Press author, Dana Borland, about her new book, Gray to Green Communities, a call to action on the housing and climate crises. We started with comparing notes about the book writing process. It's such a big accomplishment to write a book <laughs> and get it published. It's a labor of love, it turns out. <laughs> How long did it take you from concept to release date to make it happen? Ten years. Oh. <laughs> I started it in July 2012, and the book was actually published January 2021. Of course, writing the book wasn't the only thing Dana was up to in those ten years. She created the Environment Program at the JPB Foundation, one of the largest private foundations in the U.S. But the two of us had met before that, when she was vice president of green initiatives at Enterprise Community Partners, where she had a big hand in building the Green Communities Program. When Dana and I compared notes, we realized that we had some common experiences that drew us toward green affordable housing. As we reflected, we recognized that the priorities in our work, like valuing housing stability and healthy housing, are influenced by our earliest experiences. I've always thought about the stability aspects of where you live and the community and the connections that you make, because I moved at key points where I lost all of those connections. And, you know, to this day, my oldest friends date from high school because I moved at so many disrupting times earlier in my childhood, right? All those moves and that sense is being something why creating stable, predictable, affordable places for families to make a life and to think of housing as the foundation for family economies, you know, could have its roots in that mobility I experienced as a child. Yeah, definitely. I can relate to that 100%. I spent my first 10 years moving around to different houses in England, sort of southeast of London. And I vividly remember this one house. I just remember this massive orange August stove in our kitchen. And I have three brothers and their chores were to go out to the backyard and get the coal from a bin that was needed to keep the stove going. And that's one of the things I vividly remember because my oldest brother had very severe asthma. But when we eventually came to America when I was uh, 10, his asthma cleared up and he became a very successful athlete. 
And so looking back, I can just clearly see the connection between our indoor air quality from this August stove, his actually going into this coal bin, which I'm sure, you know, was not good for his respiratory health. For me, it was those kind of connections, you know, sort of the, the physical aspect of our housing. Looking back, Dana and I could map out the impact that our housing had on our families and our experiences, our health and opportunities growing up. My parents were always sort of looking for housing that they could afford, particularly housing as we became school-age children that was also in a school district that they felt like was of the quality that they wanted for us. So that really impacted my understanding of how it just becomes kind of luck of the draw of kind of who gets good housing and who doesn't. And I just became very attuned to that as a young person. Dana and I both see healthy, affordable housing as a basic human right. In my book, Blueprint for Greening Affordable Housing, Walker Wells and I make the argument that green affordable housing is essential, but only one piece of a larger puzzle. Dana's book carries that argument forward with a call for systems change. Systems change is both a process and an outcome. It requires understanding the interconnections between many pieces and identifying the levers that can change the underlying structural systems that impact our lived experiences. In the sustainability world, usually the word gray refers to civil engineering stuff like pipes and stormwater management. But in her book, Dana expanded that concept to apply it to housing and going beyond individual buildings and projects to think about the entire housing system. That system's thinking can apply on a larger scale, too. Last year, I spoke at the U.S. Green Building Council's Equity Summit, and one of the other speakers there was Diane Dillon Ridgely. And during a conversation about, well, Green is too expensive. And this is an argument you and I have <laughs> battled with since we were sweet young things starting in this uh, many years ago, right? And I've been reflecting ever since on her comment uh, that, you know, there's always been a cost. It's just a matter of who pays. And you get <laughs> at that in many different ways in the book. But in the first chapter, you said, gray housing is often just good enough for now. I love that quote uh, that you mentioned, that it, it always has a cost, just who pays, because that's, that's so true. And that's what's so extraordinary to me about the moment that we're in, is that the people who have had the least to do with the housing and climate crisis are indeed the ones who are paying for it the most. You know, I think of one of the examples I provide in the book is of Crystal Barber. She um, has had this great way of talking about the impact of her gray housing on her family and the fact that she would just eat cheap when it was electric bill week. Crystal Barber is one of the rental housing residents that Dana interviewed for her book. As you know so well, the older homes spend three times more per month on their utility bills as a result of just the older appliances, the less efficient building systems that are used. And I also just, you know, in terms of who pays, it's everybody living in these communities with the peaker plants, the power plants, the coal plants, the incinerators, 
the landfills. And it's the future generations who now are going to really have that tremendous bill that they're going to have to pay related to climate change. Less efficient building systems don't only impact the environment, they impact the people living there and their health, stability, and overall sense of well-being, both in the short term and the long term. Housing is more than just real estate. Our systems of housing, health, transportation, land use, and employment are all connected. After the break, Dana and I discuss the challenges when shifting from a gray to a green system. Check out the book that inspired the Green in Action podcast. Get my book, Blueprint for Greening Affordable Housing, to learn more about how organizations across the country are taking action to create sustainable communities and how you can too. Walker Wells and I wrote the book with real world practitioners in mind. It's a comprehensive resource on how to incorporate green building principles into affordable housing from the very beginning of a project through construction and into operations. My favorite part of the book writing process was meeting the people and hearing the stories behind the book's 14 case studies from New Hampshire to California. Buy the book today at our publisher's website, islandpress.org, or at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or an independent bookstore near you. Now let's get back to the show. Part of Dana's book tells the vital story of the Enterprise Green Communities Program and her role in developing and leading it. But as she describes, green building practices keep running up against the building materials and construction industries, the constraints of the affordable housing finance system, and the lack of a national commitment to high-quality, affordable housing for all. Well, and a huge amount of progress has happened, and in no small part to the leadership from Enterprise and from the Green Communities Criteria. But you wouldn't have written your book, I wouldn't have written my book, if we didn't know there's still so much to do, and that as much as we wish it were what everyone did and that it was easy to do, it's not. In her book, Dana lays out four big challenges when going from gray to green and frameworks for addressing them. The first challenge is accessing healthy and environmentally friendly building materials and restructuring the manufacturing industry that creates them. You can build a completely green, affordable development with off-the-shelf materials that are healthy and are already green, but we have a long ways to go to really drive better access to greener materials that address also this need to think differently about materials from an embodied carbon perspective. And so that's one of the places I think we could all do a lot better job of coming together around and really demanding materials that are healthier. Because if they are manufactured in a much healthier way, then we can end that pollution cycle for those communities where those materials are being manufactured, where we know both that that pollution is going up into the atmosphere and causing climate change, but it's also going into our homes and our schools and impacting the health of people and children. So I would love to see us think differently about that connection between our materials and our green housing and drive that systems change more rapidly. 
When we think about the housing and climate crises together, we can get more done faster. Making it easy to make the right choices about healthy and sustainable materials is one big hurdle to overcome in the green movement. That brings us to the second challenge. Inexperienced and unavailable workforce is still an obstacle. So having a workforce who understands not just energy and energy efficiency and weatherization, but does understand how to also improve the health of a home. And then also a workforce who can install solar, can think about those other aspects of green infrastructure. Even currently, even though the solar industry is expanding, we're still leaving out uh, whole populations. You know, I think it's three out of 10 green jobs are held by women. So we have a long ways to go in building a workforce that has the opportunity to gain experience and then also to build out a career. The third challenge is the insufficient and unnecessarily complicated structure of funding for affordable housing. The cobbling together of so many different sources of funding and financing is a humongous challenge. But I would stress just the scattered and sort of uncertain financing that's available to developers and owners who want to provide green housing that's affordable for everyone. This just has to change. And Dana's fourth point is that we won't be able to fully address the first three challenges without a commitment on the national level. The fourth issue that I raise, which is just a lack of national commitment. You know, even under the current administration, for whom climate change and racial equity are two of the big policy pillars, we have not actually made a national commitment to making sure that everyone has housing that they can afford regardless of their race or income. And so I would cite that as number one, because if we had a national commitment, we would make sure everything else fell in place. But we can't think of these challenges separately. Dana calls us to address them as an interconnected system and to widen the lens to all aspects of community development. She continued. Yeah, if I had my magic wand, it would be for us to stop thinking about these things in silos, you know, to stop thinking about it as here's our housing cost, here's our infrastructure cost, here's our sewer and water cost, our health cost. Think about it as a whole community. Again, it's back to this sort of way of thinking I think we can ignite imagination for doing things very differently and really advancing a much better way of delivering our housing goals while addressing climate change in the process. It's imperative to hold on to this call for new systems thinking when approaching national policy, seeing things from a perspective of interdependence. Dana raises a caution flag about the ambitious new funding proposed by the Biden administration. You can't just do the same old, same old. It's time to just change the rules of the game. This is a a massive opportunity in front of us to have an administration who is willing to put trillions of dollars towards meeting the backlog of infrastructure needs in this country and understanding that housing is a piece of our infrastructure. So I'm really excited to play a role in helping to change the rules of this game. You know, if 40% of all of the administration's climate and clean energy investments are going to go to underserved communities, then we have to make sure that that happens. But if all we do is put new money into it, we will get the same results 
just maybe more of them. You can't spend new money the same old way and hope for different results. Dana's work at the JPB Foundation has been an opportunity for her to rethink how and for whom money is spent. One of the reasons I was so excited to join the foundation was that it would give me an opportunity to connect some of the dots. So having spent 10 years working to green all of the housing in this country, it gave me an opportunity to sit down and think about, okay, how would we make that happen? I think it is the role of philanthropy to connect some dots and to take risks and to be way more patient in seeing the big picture and sticking with things that are on the right path to making the kind of systems change we need. I hope you're enjoying this episode and our first season of Green in Action. We're already getting excited for season two and we're looking for ideas. Are you a green building practitioner doing innovative and vital work? Or do you know of people, projects, or programs at the forefront of sustainable and equitable community development that our listeners should learn about? Submit ideas for potential future episodes of the pod at our website, urbanhabitatinitiatives.com. We look forward to sharing more great stories in season two, and we'd love for yours to be one of them. Now, let's get back to the show. Something that's embedded in all four of the challenges in Dana's book, and one of the biggest dots to connect, is social equity and anti-racist community development. Dana and I discussed the racist legacy of housing and how green systems thinking can contribute to redressing some of that damage. The very first challenge is to admit that the very sector in which you and I do most of our work, um, and so many other hundreds of thousands do as well, that our housing sector is one of the most manifested ways that you can understand how race plays out in this country and our housing practices are embedded in racist policies and practices. So how do we become anti-racist? I don't think I can give you just you know, one silver bullet, but I think that a starting place is to acknowledge that we do have a role to play. And if we're not actively pursuing anti-racist practices and programs, then we're actually contributing to a more racist and unjust system. Historically, Community development and urban planning is a realm where racial injustice has been physically baked into how our communities are built and organized through segregation, redlining and blockbusting in the post-World War II era, discriminatory distribution of municipal resources such as schools and services. How are those hurts going to be repaired? This is a big learning for me over the years, just who else is at the table? Who's going to benefit? Where is this wealth being created? Who's going to own that wealth? Because oftentimes, you and I know, it's going to be white people and people already in positions of privilege. It's not going to be Black and Indigenous and persons of color. And so we have to actively look for ways to change the rules of the game to ensure that every step in our goals to meet our housing and climate crises are advancing racial justice. One of the ways to set anti-racist systems change in motion is through the integrated design process, which emphasizes uplifting all voices to produce not only better buildings, but more equitable communities. For me, integrated design, as I've said, and as I write about, is this way of thinking. And 
why I'm such a big fan is because it allows us to slow down and get people around the table for whom this work is going to impact and to get into a frame of mind of designing with instead of designing for. And housing has really epitomized our racist policies and practices in this country going way, 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 way back. And, you know, even in recent history, just how our federal financing mechanisms have created these practices of excluding people of color from certain communities, loans and other financial products. And so we have a lot to do from a kind of reconciliation and repair framework. And so integrated design, as simple as it is, is just signaling that there's a different way of doing this work that requires we understand the history of the land, we understand the community and the culture, and we're in service of that. Racism and social equity issues are layered into our built environment. The only way to fully address the tangled issues of health, poverty, equity, and the environment is to understand them in tandem through an integrated interdisciplinary approach. That requires a fundamental shift in how we think about ourselves in relation to others. Dana hopes this is one of the main ideas that readers take away from her book. Take away the fact that we are all connected, that what I do impacts you, what you do impacts me, and that we need to think about those interconnections and to stop locking people in to obsolete housing that extracts from our collective well-being. Not only are we connected to one another, but together we can do so much more. And I do hope that the readers of the book understand that we can make a quantum leap in averting both the dual crisis of climate change and housing affordability in one fell swoop from gray to green. I really hope people walk away with a deeper understanding of how these systems are connected, how we as human beings are connected. One of my favorite words is Ubuntu. I am who I am because of who you are. And I hope that that is something that comes out of reading the book. Thank you, Dana Borland, for your good work and for this important call for systems change to meet the urgent needs of affordable housing and climate. If you would like to hear another conversation between Dana and me, joined by Dawn Phillips, Executive Director of the Right to the City Alliance, find the recording at our publisher's website, www.islandpress.org. You can learn more about Dana and buy a copy of Gray to Green Communities at her website, danaborland.com. You can also find her on the Island Press website, on LinkedIn, or on her Twitter, at dborland. Thanks for listening. This is the Green in Action podcast, where we share stories of green leadership in affordable housing. Connect with us. We're on Twitter, at UHI Podcast, LinkedIn, and we have an email list you can sign up for at our website, urbanhabitatinitiatives.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for doing that. We love hearing what you have to say. If you want to learn more about the integrated design process, check out our episode, Getting Into Integrated Design, or get a copy of the book that I wrote with Walker Wells, 
blueprint for greening affordable housing. The book is available from the Island Press website, as well as at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Or you can search for Blueprint for Greening Affordable Housing at www.bookshop.org to support an independent bookstore near you. This episode was written and produced by Kimberly Vermeer and Clara Kaufman. Sound engineering and audio editing by Carl Isaac Krulowicz. Music by Matt Vermeer. Kimberly Vermeer is the executive producer. Green in Action is an Urban Habitat Initiatives production.